We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. So um, we're in Daniel 5. I'm going to start by reading from Daniel 5, but it was not lost on me that this sermon happened, just so happens to land on Thanksgiving weekend. A weekend in Canada, the tradition's a little different from the United States south of us, but there is still, it's still a, a knife with two blades. Do you know what I mean? Where we are grateful that, uh, and we are connected to our land. And so we acknowledge at this time of the year that our gardens have been put down to rest for the winter and we enjoy the bounty. And that's like, to, to acknowledge that and, and imagine being a people so connected to the land that there would be natural seasons of famine and feasting. And today would be a celebration of the, the land that invites us into celebration and feasting. And yet also Thanksgiving also has a, another sharp edge where there is a gratitude for stolen wealth and stolen land. And I, I love that we exist in that tension here to this weekend and tonight uh, and at this point in our shared history. So I begin by reading um, Daniel 5, verse 1 to 4, the, the beginning of this uh, chapter. It's, a, it's just a perfect, I, I don't know, you guys, Daniel has just changed my life. These last couple months of just reading it over and over, I hope that tonight feels as profound to you as it has to me. So in the first few verses here, it says, King Belshazzar, I'll just pause it for a second. The name Belshazzar, that's not the king in the last chapter. The king who turned into an animal was Nebuchadnezzar, and without telling us anything at all, the narrator just moved on to a new king. It's a part of the ironic storytelling. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We see here the king of the world. He's the king of the world. He is the, the, the leader of the empire, the leader of the nation with the highest military budget. And he is enjoying a lavish feast. Maybe it's his Thanksgiving weekend. He is displaying his wealth before the lords, before his wives and his mistresses. And they are drinking wine and eating rich food from the stolen sacred items of the Jews. The image presented here is the perfect depiction of the predatory economy. The items that once adorned the palace and the temple, items held sacred to the Jews since the days of Moses, he is displaying here not only his wealth, but also his power over the peoples of the world. Um, as I mentioned before, notice that it is a new king, King Belshazzar. In chapter 4, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, at the end of the chapter, was crawling on his hands and knees like an animal, eating grass, growing feathers and talons, and without a word about his death or his deposition. Here we simply meet a new king, as if the narrator is winking at us saying that uh, no one who claims to be timeless exists outside of time. It is no secret that for hundreds of years, apparently thousands, artifacts have been stolen from indigenous communities and showcased in museums around the world. Um, I remember uh, getting to go to Haida Gwaii, formerly called the Queen Charlotte Islands, <laughs> just before the pandemic, and uh, we got to visit this sacred site where there were these like Haida poles that had been 
carved like many years before. Um, and at the museum, there was this one pole that was really beautiful, but it looked really worn. And in the sign, it said that a man from Seattle was sailing in the 80s and landed his boat on the shore of Haida Gwaii and found a sacred pole. And he cut it down with an axe and put it in his boat and took it home. And uh, it had just been found and restored. And it was there in the museum. And so it had just not been in a museum, but probably just in some rich guy's like living room to say, look at me, I've seen the world and it belongs to me. We live in a society where indigenous people have been accustomed to having their artifacts displayed in places where they are not welcome. <laughs> in museums and places of decision-making and wealth, and they're not ever even permitted to question the reason why. There are many cultural artifacts now on display at museums uh, in the UK, which were looted from colonized people. Apparently, according to repatriation activists, the British Museum currently houses more than 8 million, 8 million artifacts, including human remains. 8 million, uh, uh, including uh, the Benin bronzes and the Parthi Parthenon marbles. Um, they possess millions of stolen goods. There's a, a repatriation activist uh, named Okiki Agulu who says these museums were established in the Age of Empire as bragging spaces where they could show off their collections from their imperial holdings. And so we looked at the beginning of this service at Chief Crowfoot's sacred regalia that was stolen. And we know that Chief Crowfoot was a highly revered chief of the Blackfoot people and that he was one of the signers of our treaty not so long ago. But the British Crown stole his regalia, held it in the Smithsonian for 144 years. And several of these items, but not all, are, have just been returned in the last year. In the next image here, oh, this is uh, Chief Crowfoot's headdress, which you could go to the Blackfoot Crossing just like an hour and 20 minutes from here and see it here in Treaty 7 land where the treaty was signed at the Blackfoot Crossing. So the next image, so this is an image of stolen items from the Kingdom of Benin's Royal Palace during the military expedition to Benin City in 1897. So they just stole these from the palace and then they're posing a photo with all the wealth that used to adorn the palace. And I don't think they were invited there, and I'm not sure these were gifts. There are thousands of examples we could give of the ways empire has stolen sacred indigenous items since the beginning of empire. And perhaps the most provocative example is the crown that belongs to the Queen of England. The jewel that sits atop. I don't know if you know the story or where it came from. Like I think of just flaunting stolen wealth. The jewel that sits at the top of the velvet and platinum crown of the Queen of England um, is the Kohinoor, one of the largest cut diamonds in the world. It means, Kohinoor, uh, the mountain of light. And it is the jewel which originally adorned the Mughal peacock throne in Mughal, India. It has changed hands several times among warring factions, but it was handed over to Queen Victoria, victoriously, Queen Victoria, in 1849. And because of its bloody history, um, I didn't know this, I just learned this, but apparently there's a really bloody history around this diamond where men who come in contact with it die. And so there's a superstition around it, which is why only women go near it. It's only ever been passed on through women in the royal family. But the diamond is on display today at the Tower of London's Jewel House. Though governments of India, Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan have all claimed ownership and sort of asked for it back, demanded its return, the British government has rejected the claim saying that the gem was legally obtained. Wow, okay. In the middle of this great feast of flaunting the wealth, something takes place which disrupts the royal narrative. In the next few verses, it says, Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall of the royal palace next to the lampstand. The king was watching the hand as it wrote. Then the king's face turned pale and his thoughts terrified him. 
His limbs gave way. Um, in the Hebrew, it says the knots of his hips loosened and his knees knocked together. The king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck and rank third in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar became greatly terrified and his face turned pale and all his lords were perplexed. This is a profound irony. In a moment, he goes from being a god to a terrified little child. The party is interrupted. The royal narrative is disrupted. The narrative of we are the climax of human history, we are the truly civilized people, and we have come with a gospel of peace where we will force you into assimilation until you are good like us, until you are the right type of human like us. And that's the narrative. The narrative is that this king is the epitome of human history and human progress, human civilization, and he displays his wealth and believes himself to be like a benevolent overlord that protects the realm, I guess. But this narrative that the empire is always telling is suddenly interrupted. And the hand of God, which is also a human hand, appears in the middle of the festivities. It's not a secret dream. It's not a private dream anymore. It's not a private anxiety that you might not live forever. This is now a public interruption. While the king is displaying his stolen wealth and simultaneously flaunting his supremacy over the peoples of the world, while the king is pretending to be a god himself, a human hand appears in the room, begins to silently write on the wall, he who has eyes, let him see. He who has understanding, let him comprehend. The party has been interrupted. A new narrative is being introduced at the center of the imperial story. I wonder if you think about a time in your life, if you've ever been to an event and then seen someone interrupt the event. If you've ever been in it, maybe it was a streaker at a football game and it was like funny. I'm not sure if anyone can think of any. Maybe it was an athlete refusing to stand for the anthem at a sports game. Not sure. Can you think of any disruptions you've ever seen in person in your own life? Maybe you were at a nice event and then some Christians appeared with a speaker and a mic and started shouting and interrupted the event. Perhaps an example, uh, when I was thinking of this hand writing on the plaster of the wall, immediately what came to mind is famous graffiti artist and provocateur Banksy. If you know Banksy, he would sneak in invisible, like this human hand, into like war zones and places of major political tension and graffiti the wall and disappear. And there's like all sorts of like intrigue and excitement and controversy around this rebel, this graffiti delinquent. But he was often with his art revealing the foolishness of the political situation that had held so many people in its grip. And uh, no one could find him, no one knew what he looked like, but he would suddenly appear in these important moments and paint this picture on the wall, and, and everyone would stand back kind of like, what does it mean? Uh, and it always meant judgment and critique of the empire that held the place in a state of tension. I consider 26-year-old Sachin Littlefeather. In 1973, she was sent by Marlon uh, Brando to represent him at the Academy Awards when he won his role for The Godfather. This is in 1973, she's 26 years old, but um, Little Feather, when she went up to accept Marlon Brando's award, delivered an impassioned and disruptive speech, decrying the way indigenous people were depicted in Hollywood, because it was often just white actors wearing brown face paint. Upon delivering the speech, Sachin was faced with inexcusable racism, 
Some audience members began to boo her, and John Wayne himself, the, the model of uh, biblical masculinity in our part of the world, as some audience members began to boo her, John Wayne reportedly furiously threatened to storm the stage, so much so that he was restrained from physically attacking her. Since then, Sachin has been publicly mocked and harassed for years. The speech essentially killed her career in Hollywood, and an official apology was not issued for her until last year. But today, the Oscars are still struggling with authoring authentic representations of people of color, because they still often cast the in people in brownface or blackface. Um, in the next image, here's a major disruption in our human history. In 1968, Olympic gold medalist Tommy Smith and bronze medalist John Carlos put on black gloves and raised their fist. A human hand has a message for the world. They raised a fist in a black power salute. Smith and Carlos, this is in 1968. What's going on in the world in the 1960s in the States? The civil rights era, the march, Martin Luther King, uh, Selma. And they were Olympic medalists who, when they weren't on the podium representing America, in the rest of the, the time in their life, uh, America would, like, you can imagine how disruptive and powerful this moment was in history. Smith, one of the men with his, his fist raised, said, if I win, I'm an American, not a black American. But if I do something bad, then I am a Negro. He says, we are black and we are proud of being black. Black America will understand what we did tonight. Now, bringing it closer to home and closer to our moment in time, the next slide. Last year, in Edmonton, maybe you were there, or you know someone who was there, uh, Pope Francis was visiting Canada to apologize for the harms caused by residential schools, which were largely operated by a Catholic church. A Cree woman from Moskwichis, whose like, traditional land was the place where the Pope was visiting, named Sipiko, interrupted the event. Disrupted, dressed in full regalia, through tearful anguish, she lifted her voice in front of the Pope and began to sing out a Cree song to the tune of O Canada. And after she sang, this raw, powerful moment seemed to stop time. And every eye was fixed on her, not the Pope. It's a disruption of the imperial narrative. And she spoke directly to Pope Francis in Cree, in her mother tongue, knowing that he can only speak one language, she can speak many. And she cried out, dead in the eye, she said, you are hereby served spoken law. We needed a translator to get to this. So. You are hereby served spoken law. She cried out, tears, wailing. She said, we, the daughters of the great spirit and our tribal sovereign members cannot be coerced into any law, will not be coerced into any law, any treaty that is not the great law. It was a disruption, and the disruption was this. She simply cried out, mene, mene, tekel, parson, which is what the hand writes on the wall in this story in Daniel 5. The hand of God appears and interrupts the narrative of the predatory economy, interrupts the feast, as if to awaken us from the dream, as if to shake us from the delusion and open us to the real reality. This king has no power. Within moments, he goes from exalting himself over the humiliated nations to shaking and trembling, pale with fear and terror. He has no real power, and everyone knows it now, only shiny, stolen things. This king does not seem to exist in time, forgetting the death of his own father, imagining himself eternal. He does not seem to exist in place, either. The whole world belongs to him. 
He is a disembodied idea of dominion. The whole world belongs to him, and he has roots nowhere. He has no people. He has no land. He has no connection to changing seasons or the passing of time or the aging of the vulnerable human body. He has no sense that he exists within the confines of time and space. But the finger of God shakes him awake, causing him to tremble with fear. His power is a dream, and the king wakes up. The next uh, text, this is the way the queen appears and says, get Daniel. It says, there is a man in your kingdom, this is the queen speaking, there is a man in your kingdom who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and diviners because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. The irony is profound because the king is having his big feast eating out of the stolen sacred utensils of Daniel's people. And no one there can see, they don't know what it means. What does this mean? Like their narrative's never been interrupted before. Their party's never been interrupted before. And they have no clue what it means. And none of their wisest religious leaders, none of their shrewdest political consultants, none of their economists, None of them understand what the disruption means, only that it's a disruption. But the indigenous people whose sacred items you are drinking from might be able to tell you what it means. And uh, so Daniel comes and gives the interpretation. I think this is profound because the way the hand of God disrupts, um, there's going to be a lot of parallels between Isaiah and Daniel 5 in this chapter. Uh, I wish I could pull them all out, but um, it's Thanksgiving Sunday and you might not want to sit here for two hours and discuss Isaiah. I do. But uh, that's optional. You have to consent to that. So just a few. Um, in Isaiah 46, God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who has been born by me from your birth, carried from my womb. Even to your old age I am he. Even when you turn gray, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me as though we were alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse? Those who weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith who makes it into a god and then they fall down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it and they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out to it, it does not answer or save anyone from trouble. It's this text mocking this predatory economy that you lift yourself up as a statue made of gold, as a promise of prosperity and security and freedom. And he says, but you can cry out all day day to Jeff Bezos. You're not getting a raise. He can't hear you. He doesn't have ears. He's made of stone. He's a robot. The stock market will save us. It's a cry out to the stock market. It doesn't know you exist. It's just an idea. The military will save us. It's like, the military doesn't know you exist. But here's this text in Isaiah, and it's like, they won't. That's the dream, is we think they will save us, but they won't. This is the interpretation. Daniel says, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He killed those he wanted to kill. He kept alive those he wanted to keep alive. He honored those he wanted to honor and degraded those he wanted to degrade. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, he's becoming like the golden statue, so that he acted proudly, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and his glory was stripped from him. He was driven from human society, and his mind was made like that of an animal. 
His dwelling was with the wild asses, and he was fed grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven, until he learned that the most high God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals, and sets over it whomever he will. And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. It's like you have eyes, but you don't see. You, you have a memory, but you don't remember. He says, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose power is your very breath, and to whom belong all your ways, you have not honored. So from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, and this is the interpretation of the matter. I love it so much. If you've ever heard the phrase, the writing is on the wall, it's, a, it's back to this moment in this scene. He says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given away to the Medes and the Persians. This is quite the disruption to say to the king who is a god, who is immortal. Your days are numbered because it turns out you do exist in time. You are temporary. Like all of the people you've subjugated, you too have a beginning and an end. And neither are in your control. You have been weighed which I think is hilarious. It's like this king, um, in Psalm 115, it's my favorite psalm, the psalmist goes on and says, these people have formed idols that have eyes but can't see, they have mouths but can't speak, they have feet but can't walk, and the people who trust in them become like them. And so he says, this king who has put all of his trust in them has become like them. So since he's just a hunk of gold, he's gonna, God picks him up and puts him on the scale. And he weighs him. What does the stock market say? Like, what's the value of gold? You know, like, like I just see so much iron here. He's being weighed. And, and who gets to determine the value of gold? It's not the indigenous people saying, those are my precious things you, you stole. That, that's worth millions of dollars to us. Uh, the, the person stealing it says it's not worth anything. And then they put it in their palace and say it's ours. He says, you've been weighed. You are nothing more than a golden image. You are nothing more than a disembodied ideology, a mere symbol made of gold and silver, but powerless, utterly powerless to change, to move, to speak, to hear, to see. And so now I lift you and I place you on the scale and you, my friend, have been found wanting. And the truth is being unveiled. Nothing about that which you represent is real. And the promises you keep making us promises about happiness and prosperity and ease if we just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and contribute to your society, they're lies. Your reign brings only pain and bloodshed. You are the dehumanizer and you are now being divided. Your kingdom is being taken from you. I just hear uh, Gandalf, you shall not pass. Now you have come far enough. This is where you end and the kingdom will be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so there's something here, you guys, I don't know, 
there's not a lot of you here, so I can't like hide my weirdness and just trust that it's being absorbed by people who know me. It's fully on display. This is how I read social dynamics. But I geeked out so hard about this story that I made myself cry and shout, and I sang out loud in my living room, which is not, I don't do that. I'm the least musical person in my family. But I just want to show you the most fascinating thing. There's a very strong biblical image here, but it's easy to miss. This idea of the hand of God or the finger of God, that's a human hand. It's not made of gold. It's not made of lightning, you know, it's like the human hand of the real God. Um, and this, this image or this language of the finger of God or the hand of God appears in a few other key places in scripture. Can you think of any other characters in the biblical narrative who exalted himself high above the peoples of the earth, forced them into subjugation? You can probably think of a few, but there's one in particular. There's a ruler in particular in the Bible who was known for enslaving countless Hebrew people for the purposes of building his storehouses. Think about that, his storehouses. Buildings uh, where he would need to house his excess. Uh, and he used the hungry bodies of enslaved people to build his infrastructure so that he might display his glory and wealth and excess before the earth. But this king experienced the hand of God. His narrative was also interrupted. In Exodus chapter 8, this is in the plague of gnats, but look at the language here. And tell me the author of Daniel isn't like winking at us right now in 2023 in Treaty 7 land. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and gnats came on humans and animals alike. All the dust of the earth turned into gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. It's like if you think you're like the, the cleanest and most civilized and most sophisticated people of the world, but you have bed bugs, it's like, <laughs> we're going to unveil the truth. And you can't control it. The magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, but they could not. So the magicians of Egypt were fooled, just like the magicians in Babylon. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What? Made of stone? It's the same story. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He couldn't see it. He couldn't perceive it. He was made of stone. He was just a disembodied idea. And the magicians say, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. In this scene, Moses confronts Pharaoh like Sachin in Hollywood or like Pisico before the Pope. And with the finger of God, Moses and Aaron unveil the truth that the powerlessness of the great kings of the world is, is um, he, unveiling the truth that the king, great kings of the world are powerless. Unveiling the truth that their hearts are made of stone. Unveiling the truth. The stone-hearted had become like that which they worshipped storehouses, not the image of God in the human beings building the houses. And so, my friends, when we look at the finger of God motif, and we, we see that it's here both in Daniel, and it's also in the Exodus story, which is the fundamental liberation memory of Israel, we must, like we must, go see if this shows up in the Gospels, right? Like there's got to be a finger of God, hand of God seen in the Gospels. And then I'm like, whoa, 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 what other like Daniel and Moses imagery, this is how my brain works, is in the Gospels. There's got to be a place. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, the Gospel. And partially it's inspired by a sermon Adam Ayer gave at Advent two years ago. But, okay, first of all, I have to show you Isaiah 60. This is just me being a prof taking advantage of your time. In Isaiah 60, you might recognize this. Also, you'll recognize it again because uh, Anna, Kathy, Advent reading. Yeah. Okay, all right. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come. This is being spoken just around the time of Belshazzar's death and the end of the Babylonian Empire. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear before you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. There's a whole tradition about the wise men, the enchanters, the diviners, the magicians from the East who appear to a little baby born in a manger surrounded by animals. It's the book of Daniel. And it says, in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the East came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, wise men from the East are having dreams? It's Daniel, it's Joseph, it's the Exodus and Daniel. Ah, this, okay. Um, and, they, and they had a dream, and they left for their own country by another road. And I'm like, oh, there's so much Daniel imagery here. But but also Moses' imagery. What other baby in the whole biblical story survived an evil king trying to kill all the babies? Moses, Jesus. This is the birth of Moses, and this is the birth of Daniel. And what's really cool, if you think about it growing up, you are always confused. Are they three kings or three wise men? Right, has anyone ever like felt that? Like, depending on what church you're at, it's like the wise men still seek him, or like king of kings, like we don't know. Are they wise men or kings? Is it Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar? Are these the three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius, come to give back to the Jewish people their sacred regalia? Here's your gold back. Or are these three magicians, enchanters, and diviners, come to Bethlehem bringing gifts to the king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? They followed a great light. Is this a story of repatriation? You see, the stolen sacred items of Israel are being returned to a small house in Bethlehem where a baby is being laid among the animals. This baby will grow up to call himself the son of man, which is a phrase we get from Daniel. And another way of saying son of man is the human one. And as we begin to notice, this is me, I'm, I'm, I'm being le le generous with the word we, because I'm like, right, right? I think as we notice so many parallels between the story of Daniel and Jesus, think about this, if, if you've been tracking or if you know Daniel, the book of Daniel begins with a king dreaming about golden statues. And then he wakes up, forges a huge statue made of gold, erects it high for everyone to see. All of his subjugated peoples are forced to bow down and worship the golden statue. If they refuse, he condemns them to a fiery hell. And then this human becomes a god made of gold. He dreams that he's made of gold. He wakes up. He makes himself an image of himself out of gold. And then the friends uh, don't bow down and worship it. They're thrown into a fiery hell, but they survive. These human beings, these subjugated human beings, survive the fiery furnace as if they're made of gold, not flesh. It's the irony. It's a disruption of the predatory script because the humans don't burn. And in the very next chapter, the king becomes an animal, grows feathers and talons, and eats grass like an ox. 
And this paradox between gods, humans, and animals is what's woven all throughout Daniel. It's actually woven throughout the entire Bible. The question being, what is a human? What does it mean to be human? Is a human someone who is just nothing more than an animal wearing clothes? Or is a human exalted above the natural world more God than beast? Remember, and I, I mentioned this last week, if you were here, you will call, but in the Garden of Eden, the serpent whispers this very question to Eve. So what's it going to be, lady? Are you a human? Are you an animal like us, or are you a god? And the irony of that story is a snake is talking. It's not a very animal thing to do. It's kind of human. So the snake is more human than Eve. This animal being is speaking to Eve, saying, are you one of us, or are you a god? And so it's really profound, because in this story, the animals speak like humans, and the humans fall for the simplest of tricks, like a dog coming for a juicy treat. The kings in Daniel exalt themselves up as gods, but end up revealing that they are barely animals. And so in the next chapter, in the very next chapter, check this out. The king of the Medes will outlaw the sacred ceremonies of the subjugated peoples. And when Daniel is caught resisting, he's thrown into a den of animals. But the human, the human king, the human king throws his subjugated people into a den of animals. But the animals refuse to tear the flesh of the innocent, revealing that they are more human than the king. Because the human king has no problem throwing other humans to be devoured by lions. And there's this paradox that comes out that who's the animal? Who's the human? What's real? Who has power? And it's like, oh, this is the anxiety that we all carry in our bodies. So consider the way that Jesus, in Matthew's example, is born among the animals. While his own king Herod searches the kingdom like a ravenous lion, slaughtering the innocent children of his own people because he knows what he thinks we do not know that his power is an illusion. The king in Daniel's story steals silver and gold, worships it, demands we all worship it, and in Matthew, the Babylonians are bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh back to Bethlehem. And since Moses is the only other baby in the Bible who survived the tyranny of a king, scouring the land for innocent babies to kill, it makes me then lose my mind when I find the place where the finger of God appears in the Gospels. So Luke 11, this story, there's so much here. Um, I, wish, I, I, hope, I hope that y we, we receive this text. Um, it says, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. There's not a lot of healing stories in the Bible about being mute. So this is important, okay? What does it mean to not have a voice? You don't get to tell your story. No one's going to believe you. You have no voice. You're mute, okay? So, so someone has possessed the body of another human and made it so they can't speak anymore. <laughs> when the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke. It's Sipiko spoke and the crowds were amazed but some of them didn't like it and they said he cast out demons by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons others to test him kept demanding from him a sign from heaven but he knew what they were thinking and he said to them every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert and house falls on house if Satan also is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul but if I cast out demons by Beelzebul by whom do your exorcists cast them out Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons from the throne room in Babylon, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And he goes on. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. You can't get your stuff back from the Smithsonian. The, the security system is the world's top technology. 
fights, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and then he divides his plunder. This is the story, this is the climax um, that's, that's going to bring us to the, the, the table of, of Eucharist and communion. Jesus is doing the opposite here of what the predatory economy does. He's giving a person back his voice. The predatory economy does the opposite, takes your voice away. He's giving a man back his voice. He's touching mouths. He's opening them wide. He's whispering. He, 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 he's singing out loud. Sing louder, Cipico. Sing loud for the Pope to hear. And, and the people have never seen a king give voice to people. Kings only take them away. Kings turn us numb. They tell us to obey or suffer. They turn us into robots and drones and stats. They turn us into social insurance numbers. They turn us into tiny little boxes filled out on a census. They accuse Jesus of being the adversary because he's doing the opposite of what every king they've ever known is doing. And then notice the name. It doesn't say devil or Satan. It's Beelzebub. Um, the connection is quite strong to Belshazzar and Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's name. Bel, the god Bel, the Babylonian god Bel. Belzebub is a, like a Hebrew slur to mock the god of empire. It means god of the flies, and it's a play on the, the Babylonian name, Belzebul, which means lord on high. So Jesus is standing here saying, I am not working for Bel. I am not like Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh. I was born among the animals. I'm a human one, no gold, no stony heart. If you become like that which you trust, Jesus says, I've become soft hearted and compassionate. Jesus exists in time and place. Jesus can bleed and feel pain. And he says, I have come not to take your voice. I have come that you might find it again, that you might gain the courage to take your power back. I stand with you. And Jesus says, if the finger of God has done this, given this man back his voice, do you know what that means? Mene, mene, tekel, parson. The time is up for Rome. Babylon becomes the quintessential metaphor of empire in the Bible. The book of Revelation does not name Rome. It only calls Rome Babylon. And the language here in Luke 11 is mene, mene, tekel, parson. So at the communion table, you guys, this was like, there was like four layers of theophany. I don't know if I can call it while preparing this because at the communion table, we actually find ourselves at a banqueting table like in Daniel 5. But it's a little bit of a different table, isn't it? At this table, we honor a different kind of king. Not the king who has power to crucify you if you don't obey. Not the kind of king who is going to dehumanize you and strip you of life should you stray from his dehumanizing agenda. This table is the banqueting table of a king on the night before he binds the strong man and plunders the house. A king before he spends a night in the museum, taking back from the queen the jewels that belong to the children of India, taking back from the Smithsonian the regalia of the, of the Blackfoot, restoring language and voice and agency to people who've been rendered numb with fear or complacency from despair. This is the night that the human king finds the stone king and takes back the human body from the fires that have been used to melt the treasures of God into lifeless forms. This is the banquet where God gives us back our body. Not a table for spirit and soul, which is a weird thing to say in church, right? I grew up in a church world where it was like, this isn't a body. There's nothing physical happening. Close your eyes. 
escape this place, leave time, leave everything. It's just you and Jesus in a throne room. And I'm like, in my kind of deconstruction, I'm like, I don't want to leave my body and tune everyone out and go to a disembodied place. I want to come with a hungry belly and eat food with the human king. And he says, this is my body for your body. Take it and eat and find your voice. This is not a table of disembodied ideals. This is a table of release, of forgiveness, of being reborn as a wriggly little baby who can cry, who can be naked. And Jesus says, this is my body given to you. It's not made of gold. It's not timeless. It's not just an idea. It can go moldy. It can decay like you. So take and eat. Feel it in your belly. Allow it to become a part of you. Feel the parts of you that have been turned into plastic. Feel the parts of you that have become little more than a number on a screen or a bank record. Feel the parts of you that have become empty rooms where music used to play and laughter was once heard where gardens grew and children felt safe and free. Maybe there's a room within you and your inner child is there, hasn't felt safe and free to cry and laugh in a long time. So when you come to this table with your body, feel those parts of you that have been dehumanized and encounter the spirit of the living God rehumanizing us, saying, this is my body and my blood. Eat and drink and feel the warmth of your own skin. And it becomes a radical act of resistance to consume the body of God, as if to say, tonight we loot the kingdom. We wake up from the dream. We remember what Jesus said in Mark's telling of this night. Do you remember in Mark, we did it at Lent this year, immediately after the Eucharist meal, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus turns and he says, stay awake, keep watch with me. Something is happening tonight. We're gonna bind the strong man and once you're no longer afraid of death anymore, we will cry out again. And um, so there's this hope. I'm going to read to you from Revelation 18. Let's get apocalyptic. Anna started us on apocalypse. We'll, uh, we'll end it here. In Revelation 18, it's the great fall of Babylon, the fall of king, uh, the, the great king. And the people cry out, alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all kinds of scented wood and articles of ivory and articles of costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and olive oil and choice flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and human beings and all the shipmasters and seafarers and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her the strong man has been bound, and we are rich. The fields will sing out and rejoice with the truth. For all that is As a benediction, before we go, um, 
I'm simply going to read again the poem that Anna began with and then send us with a, a blessing from the same author. The fellow who wrote this prayer, very cool, his name is Claudio Carvelhas. Uh, he wrote Liturgies from Below, Praying with People at the Ends of the World. He says, For Tears, water of life that runs down our faces and connects our lives for the burden of God's creation, for the spirit of solidarity, for when we are welcomed, for the hospitality of indignant people, for God's goodness running through the natural resources, for the ability to listen to wounded people, for the chance to become better humans, for the activists, community workers and prophets who give their lives, gifts and labor to the people of the world, for being together here, for the noise of children, for the spirit of resistance and rebellious people, for clean water, the strength and courage to live on in spite of loss, for the gift of the others, the families with whom we live, for maternal rage, for hope that comes from smiles and laughter, and for faith in patience in the midst of suffering. And so may you go in peace from this place with the living, disturbing God. May you go to disrupt those who are comfortable and to comfort those who mourn, to walk alongside those who suffer. Now receive the blessing of God all loving, God our mother who holds us in our pain, God our brother, Jesus the Christ who gives us courage to resist, and God the Spirit who binds us together in all that is free. Amen. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honor that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.